Uh, good morning, church. My name is Jonathan Mayo. I'm an elder here at Resonate. Um, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here to share the word with you today, to teach with you, and for us to go through this passage together. Uh, let's start by praying to our Lord. <clears throat> Lord God, I pray uh, today that my words would become your words and that we would leave here today with our heart um, or to act differently than the world to point ultimately to you. And Lord, we do also pray for our lead minister here, Chris Case, as he is out on sabbatical. Lord, we pray for rest and peace and rejuvenation for him and his family um, until they return. Amen. Um, so guys, uh, like Sarah said, today is Generation Sunday, so we've got our kids in here, and so we're going to, um, as, I'm, as I'm preaching and, and, and talking through this passage, we're gonna, I'm going to engage with the kids some, uh, and guys, like she said, don't worry, the kids are get a little rowdy, don't worry about it, that's fine. And we got four in our house right now, we're used to it, don't even worry about it. Um, but kids, I'm really glad to have you guys here today, and I want to talk to you guys first, because uh, you're clearly the most important ones in this room, since you guys are going to be you know, growing up and, and carrying forward our faith in Jesus, and so I want to start by asking our kids here today, uh, does anybody have a mirror at home? Anybody have mirrors at home? Let me see some hands. If you got a mirror at home, raise your hand. Oh yeah, lots of mirrors. We got a couple back there. Yeah, you got Quinn, you got one too? Yep. Uh, I brought one here. This is a mirror from our house. And mirrors are cool. Oh, look, there it is. I was trying to get this to do this during the first service and I couldn't get it. But like, it's reflecting the light. You, That's pretty cool. Uh, and, you know, I, we use mirrors in our house too. And, you know, we, we use them when we're brushing our teeth. We like to make funny faces in the mirror. That's one thing we do. Um, you know, maybe if I'm going to go on a date with mommy or something like that, I'll make sure I'm looking good before I look good. Like, you know, maybe some of you older kids, before you go to like a school dance, you're probably doing the same thing, you know, making sure you look good. Uh, but guys, we can use mirrors for, to do some really amazing and different things. And uh, one example of this is, is, um, is this, uh, we'll see if we got a slide of it. It's the James Webb Telescope. And you see it there, that, that was launched not too long ago. And that spacecraft is now float, or not floating, it's orbiting, uh, going around in space. I think it's hanging out at about L3 is I think the orbit spot, I don't know what you call that, uh, in space. And it's out there for a reason. It's going to use these really super cool golden mirrors that you see there. Now, it's not like this mirror. It's a much fancier mirror. And it's going to reflect light from super far away in the universe into the center spot on the spaceship. Let's just see if we've got a picture of those mirrors. Yep, there's one. So there's a scientist there who's probably like checking the mirror, getting it clean. You can see those are much fancier mirrors than we have in our house. It looks like they're made of gold or something. I don't know. They're very cool and very powerful. And the scientists use these mirrors in a different way than we use our mirrors at home. They use them to reflect light in the middle and to almost use it like a telescope to take pictures super far away in the universe. And guys, these pictures are amazing. Here's one example of a picture it took right here. This is, what do we call this thing? This is the... Uh, this is the a picture of the edge of a nearby young star forming area called NGC 3324. It's in the Carina Nebula. If you've not been there, it's lovely this time of year. Uh, just kidding, I've never been there. Uh, this is the, the name for this area of space is called the Cosmic Cliffs. And I was like, that's so cool. Uh, and so, guys, uh, scientists use these mirrors to take pictures of incredible things super far away. And guys, uh, in the same way, Jesus kind of wants at us to act differently, uh, kind of like we use mirror, the scientists are using mirrors differently in our relationships. He wants us to act differently, like how you act with, if you're married or how you act if, uh, with your parents or how you might act with your teacher or your boss. And, and um, why does God want us to do this? Well, he really wants us to do it to reflect Jesus to others. Instead of just reflecting ourselves, 
He wants us to reflect something even better and more amazing. He wants us to reflect Jesus to others. That's why he wants us to do it. Jesus is amazing. Uh, I mean, we should reflect him, not ourselves. And and that's what I want to talk to you guys about today. So let's dive in. Um, We're going doing a series right now, um, preaching through the book of Ephesians. And this is a letter written by Paul to to, uh, a region around Ephesus. It's it's a major city under Roman law. Uh, And last week we heard uh, Jonathan uh, Pasquale preached on uh, Paul's instruction for us to walk in the light. And how we, um, that our purpose is, is to actively live in the light and that in a way that imitates and glorifies God. And today, Paul's going to continue to tell us about how our walks with God should look and how we live in, in a way that is, is wise and how we live wisely in three important relationships. First, wives and husbands. Second, parents and children. And third, bond servants and masters. And guys, the, the first and third examples are going to be hard for us as we read them today. And I'm going to admit that as I prepare for the sermon, you know, you read these passages and, and, it, and it's concerning. I mean, you can easily view this as like patriarchal suppression of women in marriage or, or domineering parenting within the family or, or, or even controlling and maintaining slavery. And, and uh, but guys, as I have studied and wrestled with these passages over the last two months, I believe that is not at all God's intent for this passage. And I want us to be careful not, not to, to jump to the conclusion, to the narrative that the culture around us often spins about these passages. I mean, you'll, you'll, read, what, you'll read what we're going to hear in a second, and you, you'll, you'll cringe, but, um, but hold on. In the words of Jen Wilkin, when we hit hard passages like this, we should stop and go back to this question. If God is good, then how is this an expression of his goodness? The question is not, is God good? We know he's good. So we should look for how this passage... Why, why does God want us to, to, to live out these instructions as he describes here in these relationships? It's because he calls us to act differently in these relationships to point to him. These relationships aren't about us. They're about pointing to something bigger and more beautiful. And as we live these out in wisdom through submission and sacrifice, we imitate and honor and ultimately point to Jesus. And guys, it's going gonna, it's gonna to call us in each of these examples to live differently than the way our heart's going to want to go. We're going to want to go do this over here. I'm, I mean, my, myself, I'm a selfish guy. I'm going to want to do what's good for me. I'm going to want to put myself first. I don't want to submit to anybody. But that's not what Jesus is calling us to do. He's calling us to live differently. And guys, I think that the instruction on marriage uh, that we're going to talk about today is the most important of the three for us here today, and I'll explain why. Uh, but that's where we're going to spend most of our time. And, and please hear me. We've got to cover th- three major and uh, hot, relatively hot button topics today. And in, in one sermon, you could take a single sermon to talk about a, a verse out of every one of these. I mean, it is, we're going to do a lot here today in a short amount of time. We're going to do it with our kids with us, too. Uh, so this is, you know, but by God's grace, uh, he, you're going to hear today what, what he wants you to hear. And um, so let's dive in together. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. This is the word of our Lord God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Now, before we go further, further, let's go back. One passage to verse 15 through 21. And Paul here is going to tell us um, to... Um, we have that up there? Yeah. Um, to look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And then he gives several examples and instructions. And there's a transition sentence at verse 21. This is important. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul adds this transition sentence here to say one of the ways that we should walk in wisdom as Christians is to practice submission in certain uh, relationships. And as prior, as Pastor um, Brian Chapel points out, God calls for everyone to submit to someone, but not everyone to submit to each other. Again, everyone is to submit to someone, but not everyone to everybody else. And with this verse, Paul makes a key point that we must keep in mind as we read the next three examples. Why should we submit and, and sacrifice in this way? Out of reverence for Christ. We submit and sacrifice to honor him through this countercultural calling that he's calling us to. And so now Paul's going to dive into the first of the three examples of submission and sacrifice in the Christian marriage. And let me say this to, uh, you know, singleness is, is a sacred calling in and of itself. It's a calling to deep commitment and relationship to God. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 7. It's a calling honored by God. But God also has a special purpose for this marriage relationship, and that's what we're looking at today. So Ephesians 5.22, let's dive in. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. We read this today and, and we cringe. I mean, it seems kind of oppressive or even demeaning. But if God is good, what does he mean for us to understand from this passage? And the main point, I think, is this. Paul is instructing those in marriage what a healthy, God-centered marriage should look like. It's, it's, it's designed for, for a mutual benefit and, and, and allowing the husband and wife to fully live as God designed. But it's going to be countercultural in approach, both then and now. And ultimately, this is, I think, a key point to take away from this, Jesus and his church to tell of a love marked by submission and support and sacrifice and cherishing. The first point that we need to clearly make here, and I want to be very clear about this, the Bible clearly affirms that both men and women are created in God's image. They have equal value, equal dignity in God's sight and for his kingdom work. And at the same time, the Bible indicates that husbands and wives in this marriage relationship are called to different and complementary roles in the marriage relationship. Again, equal value, different roles. Second, I want us to try not to get caught up here when we hit the word submit. I know in our culture and day, that we kind of snag on that word. The Greek here is hupotasso, which means to arrange under. It's like to fill in a pattern to make a complete whole. It's like a building block, a key foundation of the relationship, of the structure. And this context, completing the marriage structure. And, and the word support is actually a, a good synonym for the biblical concept of when they're talking about submission in this context. It's a support for the, mar for the husband in this context. It's a deference and respect to the husband's leadership in that relationship. But I also want to talk about what submission is not. Submission is not the standalone thing that wives have to do. It must occur alongside and in tandem with the husband's deep and sacrificial love for his wife. Both are required by God's design. It also notes that wives are to submit to their own husbands, not to all men. 
We are not talking about uh, the dynamics between genders outside of marriage. We're not talking about what happens in the marketplace. We're not talking about what happens at work. We're talking about in this one relationship, this is how God designed it. And again, submission is not like the, the obedience that Paul is going to talk about here in a minute when he talks about parents and children and how obedience looks there. That's not, what we're, that's not it's a different thing than what we're talking about here when we say submit. And it's not also blind or absolute deference from the wife. Each time Paul grounds his instruction in, in the Lord or similar terms, stressing the importance. And this is important. I think this drives home for me where I really found where, where, where God's heart is, is in this. Is, is, guys, what Paul is doing here in writing this letter to them is vastly countercultural. It really is at the time. I mean, Roman, Roman family structures were highly oppressive to wives. Wives were property under the Roman rules in dehumanizing ways. They could be treated however by their husbands. They could be killed without consequence by the husband. What Paul does here with it is to elevate wives out of this property status and to empower them in the family relationship. The fact that Paul is even writing directly to wives and children and bond servants in this letter was radical at its time. And humanizing and honoring to those people. And then I think this shows us that God's intent for this structure should be empowering to wives. It should be allowing uh, for a thriving within the marriage relationship. It's not oppressive. It's not an abusive structure. This structure is, is called for a position of respect, not of demeaning. Wives should be utilizing all of their gifts in the marriage, not, not suppressing them. And the husband is required to ensure that marriage is empowering his wife in that way. Paul also says that we, um, the submission should, should occur as to the Lord. What does that mean? Is this like the, the husband is, is, the, is the Lord of the family or what? No, no, no. He, he's tying it back to the prior verse when he, when he says the same thing as out of reverence for Christ. Wives are called to submit in order to honor Christ. You're not doing it to, to, um, to puff up the husband or, 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 or make him feel good. No, you're doing it to honor Christ. All of this is out of reverence for Christ. Let's look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. When it says here, the husband is the head of the wife, it's not saying that wives cannot think for themselves or that they are lesser in any way. Wives are honored, it says. And spiritual gifting and leadership roles for women are noted many times throughout scripture. It is simply a metaphor for the marriage structure, and it's a metaphor here. It is meant to reflect Christ and his relationship to the church. It's not an arbitrary structure. It points to something bigger and beautiful. Again, it's not just about you and your husband or or you and your wife. God has designed the marriage to be a way of reflecting this beautiful story of Jesus and his bride, the church. And Christian marriage is meant to be a constant picture and reminder of that. Okay, so now Paul's going to turn and give three times as much instruction to the husband. Uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in verse 25. Um, So what are we we to do? Husbands are to love their wives. What kind of love is this we're called to give? It's the same kind of love that Jesus gives us, his people and his bride. This is a deep, radical, sacrificial love, and it's the kind of love we are to give our wives as husbands. How did Jesus do it? He gave himself up for her, it says, for her great benefit. He laid down his life for her. Husbands, we are to use the authority that God has designed for us to do what? To sacrifice ourselves for the good of the wife and the family. The husband is also submitting to God by following his example. And Jesus, 
Paul further describes the husband's love as nourishing and cherishing of his wife. And in, in 1 Peter 3, he calls for empathy and honor for your wife. Husbands, this is what we're called to. This description is going to be directly opposed to some kind of domineering or oppressive um, love or authority that is like, you know, constantly exerted over your wife that we've, you know, we've heard of plaguing the narratives of Christian marriage the last couple decades. That is not how Jesus loved while he was on earth. That is not how he loves you today. And most importantly, I think Paul tells us here how Christian marriage is really meant to show us about Christ's love for us. And it should be a daily reminder of that. Let's look at verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. And calling it profound, not because he's like, oh, that's a really cool thing. Uh, he's saying, no, that God had a plan from the beginning of time when he built this marriage structure. He's added this plan that thousands and thousands of years later, there will be a Jesus and he will be my son and he will sacrifice and love and all this is going to point to his love for the church. He's, he has a plan for this and that is why Paul calls it profound. It's a beautiful picture of God using his design for marriage to point to a future promise for his people, for everlasting life with Christ. Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin, a Christian author and theologian, published an article on this I found when I was preparing, and she brilliantly lays out how we should interpret this passage. And so I was going to try to like piece it together or just find one quote, and I was like, nah, we're just going to have to read it. So uh, here we go. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is a good part. Uh, here's what she says. Ephesians 5 grounds our marital roles not in gendered psychology, but in Christ-centered th- th- theology. It's a daily challenge to remember what I'm called to and to notice opportunities to submit to my husband as to the Lord, not because I'm naturally more or less submissive or because he is more or less, uh, naturally more, le- more or less loving, but because Jesus submitted to the cross for me. We must, we must not misread it as justifying traditional gender roles. The text doesn't say the husband is the one whose need to come first and whose comfort is paramount. In fact, Ephesians 5 is a withering critique of traditional gender roles in its original context and today. In the drama of marriage, the wife's needs come first, and the husband's drive to prioritize himself is cut down with the acts of the gospel. My marriage isn't ultimately about me and my husband any more than Romeo and Juliet is about the actors playing the role. My marriage is about Jesus, or is about reflecting Jesus and his church. Guys, God has designed this beautiful structure for marriage for our benefit and also for a greater purpose. Uh, There's a beautiful circular nature to the structure that God has designed. I kind of think of it like this. Uh, It's it's the circle of love where wives are deferring and supporting their husbands and husbands are sacrificially loving their wives in deep and incredible ways. And this forms a loop of selfless love. And it's cheesy, but it's true. I mean, you see the submission and sacrifice circulating together, feeding each other and all the way pointing to Jesus. That's the design. Is that how it looks day in and day out? No, we're in a fallen world. Our marriages are broken. But this is what God wants for us. So what does that mean for, for our, our marriage? Our marriages here at Resonate. Well, submission does not look like a dictatorship in marriage where the wives are the doormat and just do whatever the husband says. But it, all, does all, but it also does not look like the husband saying, well, my, my, my wife is my sister and we're just gonna, you know, she might leave sometimes, I might leave sometimes, we'll just see where it goes. And I would argue that our greater concern for, in, for Christians and marriages in our church today is the husbands declining their responsibility to lead. 
saying it's hard. I, I don't want to do that. It's, it's you know, kind of against the cultural narrative right now. I don't, I don't want to do it. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's hard. I'm not going to do it. And wives, I understand that this is also asking you to sacrifice the primary leader role in in spiritual realm and marriage, but it also is freeing because you can trust that God, who has designed this thing, uh, that God's that he's going to work through it, through this structure for your benefit and for his ultimate glory. So practically, what can we do? Husbands, I'm talking to you. You should be stepping in to lead your family towards Jesus. You should be taking the initiative to read uh, the word and pray with your wife and kids, even if it's not easy, it may not be comfortable, it may not be fun, but you're called to do it. For example, in our house, one way this looks is uh, we have a six-year-old, two, three-year-olds, and a one-and-a-half-year-old, and sometimes in our bedtime routine, we try to frequently sit down with them and read a Bible story with them and, and talk, engage with them about it, and it can be a wiggly struggle to get those kids in there and listen to that story. But uh, man, when you see, every once in a while, every couple of days, you'll see one of them connect with it, and you'll see them just a little light bulb come on, and they'll start to see something. That's why we do it. We're called to give and to sacrifice and to be patient and try again and again as parents to, to engage with them. And husbands, you should be the first one stepping up to make sure that's happening in your house. And I'm not saying wives don't lead in the, in the marriage, uh, in the family relationship. Um, I see wives here day in and day out pouring themselves out and leading their children and their families towards Christ. That's true. But ultimately, as the husbands, you are, you are the stopgap. You are the end. You are the one where the buck stops. You must be stepping up to lead your family towards Christ. And guys, this may look like uh, stepping into hard decisions for your family, even when it's not popular or when it's not going to be fun for your family and you're not going to make friends with your kids by, by having your kids do something hard. But if you feel it is right, you're stepping in and do it. For example, if there's like a family in need, uh, let's say there's somebody who needs childcare or something like that, or somebody needs a place to stay and you know your family's worn out and you're like, ah, oh, man, this is going to be tough to do. You know, it's going to be hard on, our, on us to make this happen. But if you feel that calling that you know it's right to do and you know that you should step up and do it, you should be the first one to say, guys, I think we need, we need to do this. I'm going to go babysit for those people, whatever it might be. You should be the first one. Wives, you should be looking for opportunities to defer and to support your husbands as he tries to lead and encouraging leadership toward Jesus. And wives, when your husband is struggling to lead well towards Jesus, you have a responsibility to confront and address that with him. That's not a fun conversation, but it is one you must have, you are called to have. You are, again, you are the support for this, this structure. And for me personally, in my marriage, I mean, this dynamic of submission and leadership is, is mostly unseen. I mean, this is not this like thing where every day we wake up and, oh, there better be submission here, there better be sacrifice here. It, it should be this like flowing trend that is constantly going on in the, in the background, but it's mostly unseen. But I think ultimately where, we, where I do see it play out, giving you from a more practical side, is, is in those kind of really difficult decisions we have to make as a couple about the direction for where our family uh, needs to go when there's no perfect answer or there's no clear path, and I'm called to step up and lead our family. I'm also called to carefully and sincerely listen to my wife, Emily, as she, as she speaks into those decisions with me. For example, when we were considering fostering, um, Emily kind of felt the calling first, my wife, and, and I was not ready for some time. And, and she deferred to me um, when and if God would work in me, trusting God's work in and through this is designed for marriage and his timing for it. 
And she continued to share her heart with me through what God was doing in her heart through that process and over, ye- over several years. And eventually I did feel that the Lord started to call us to that and we, when we pressed ahead together. Why, or we should also be seeking as a couple uh, wise counsel from others as we struggle in our marriages here at Resonate. We're, we're going to talk about parenting in here in a minute. And, and a healthy and stable marriage is an amazing opportunity to point our kids towards Jesus. Again, that's what we're saying. That's the point of marriage is it allows us to point to Jesus. We need to be investing in our marriages in our church early on, inviting in singles and dating couples to walk alongside more mature couples here at our church to let them witness Paul's teaching uh, being lived out before they enter into marriages themselves. And church, living out our marriages this way is going to be hard. This is a hard calling, and it's going to be different in the world, how they do it around us. But there's great freedom and blessing in this as God has designed. And when we do this differently, when we live this differently, we point to Jesus. All right, now, now we're going to uh, move and talk. Paul's going to talk um, to uh, the parent and child relationship. So let's go to chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the great commandment, or this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So first, Paul speaks, speaks to kids. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys are still awake, but kids, if you can hear me, say, hey, hey. Oh, I got a good first service thing in as many. You guys did better in here. Uh, okay, so Paul is talking to you guys now, and he says, God is telling you to do two things in here. First, you're to obey your parents, and second, you're to honor your parents. Uh, but he says you need to do this in the Lord. Well, that's kind of a weird thing to say. I wonder why he said that. Well, I think he said it because he wants you to not just blindly obey your parents and just do whatever they say like a robot. That's not what he's doing. He wants you to obey and honor your parents and, and see... Is this, is what they're asking me to do right? If they're asking you to do something wrong, you shouldn't do it. And so if you feel like they're asking you to do something wrong, you should ask them. And they'll, they should be able to tell you why it's, why it's right. So guys, that's why, why it says in the Lord there. And what does it mean to honor your parents? It's kind of a weird word to honor somebody. It means to love and respect them. And what Paul is asking for is, is not simple obedience, but also to respect your parents as you, as you live out uh, that relationship. And I think we've all seen maybe our brothers and sisters, maybe our littler ones, our toddlers who, you know, a parent may say like, oh, uh, please go put that toy toy away back where it goes. And the toddler stomps over, you know, with a big scowl on his or her face and grabs the toy and slams it in the basket and storms out of the room. And well, the parent has gotten obedience there. The child obeyed, but we haven't reached the heart to honor and love our our parents, even as we obey. So we got to do both. It's hard to do. With God's help, we can do it. And Paul also says that this commandment comes with a promise. And uh, that's kind of an interesting thing to say. But what I think, I think it means is that, uh, guys, if we listen to our parents' wiser commands, what they tell us to do, because they're older and wiser than us, it's probably going to go better for us in the long run. Uh, who here has a tree fort? Raise your hand if you've got a tree fort in your backyard. Anybody got tree forts? Got a couple over here. Good, thank you. Um, we have one too, and we tell our kids, don't climb on the roof of your tree fort. Right, Ford? We say, you can't climb on the roof. Uh, and so... And the reason we do that is, guys, I have climbed on a tree floor. I have fallen off the roof and I got really hurt. And the reason we tell your kids that is because we don't want you to get hurt. And so if you listen to what we're saying, you're probably going to live a little longer. And that, that's good. So that's, that's what, what it means there. All right. And, and guys, when you, this is the best part. When you obey and respect your parents, guys, you are acting like Jesus. And you're pointing other people, maybe your friends, your brothers and sisters, you're pointing to Jesus by doing that. You're telling them, hey, 
Uh, th- this, is, this is what Jesus wants me to do. This is what I'm doing. So now Paul turns and, and talks to the fathers here. In verse four, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul is not ignoring the mother here, but, but he's purposely speaking to the leader of the Christian family. And he's saying here, don't provoke your kids to anger with how you parent. But the Greek word here really is, is, to, is um, for provoke is exasperate or to irritate or frustrate. And what Paul is telling parents is that from our parenting from the top down, if you will, is to be in line with God's principles and not hypocritical. For example, you'll say your, your kid is, is uh, you know, screaming at his brother or sister, and, you know, and then you're like, stop yelling at them. Like, you quit that. You know, you're being hypocritical. You're screaming at your kid to stop screaming. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, so, guys, we, we have to make sure that we're not parenting away that, that that when we parent, it aligns with what we actually are saying and what we actually believe. If we don't, we're only going to bring our children to anger and frustrate the Lord. This includes both setting up guardrails and providing guidance to our children as they grow. We are, we are the parents. We are the face of Jesus to our children. And guys, this is incredibly challenging to do this well. And I, we don't have time today to get all into the details of how to parent well. But let me say this, and this is, I think, probably the best thing I can take away you could take from this, but guys, our walks with the Lord need to be in front of our kids, modeling what it should look like for them. They will see what you love and value, whether you want them to or not. I'm going to say that again. I found that very convicting. They will see what you love and value, whether you want them to or not. But you are not alone, thankfully. The church a family is called to walk alongside and support and encourage and engage with the, with the parents as they go through this journey. And guys, kids benefit from other adults coming alongside them and, and confirming the teaching that their parents are laying down for them. And I'm thankful for our, our, our parent volunteer, our uh, child care volunteers who do that week in and week out over here in our kids' space. Thank God for them. Okay, now uh, Paul's going to turn and talk about uh, one other common relationship where submission and sacrifice play out in Ephesus, the bondservant and master relationship. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive it back from the Lord, whether he is the bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Two points we need to make here before we talk about what he's saying here. First, the Bible does not say slavery is right or okay. We could, I could walk you through numerous passages that shows that the Bible does not support slavery. It does not condone slavery. We don't have time for that today. But Instead, let me leave you with this quote from uh, pastor, author, and theologian, Dr. Esau McCauley from his book, Reading While Black. It's an excellent book, uh, walking through some of these hard pasts. Old and New Testaments simply baptize the institution of slavery as they find them. Instead, scriptures raise the tensions between cult, uh, the central themes of the Bible and slavery. All Christianity's beliefs work together to end slavery, including the command to love one another, the warning against greed and sexual immorality and the atonement, the image of God, justification and justice. Together, these doctrines make the institution of slavery unacceptable in the long term. Let us always bear in mind of what slavery is and what the gospel is. The Bible Bible shows that slavery is counter to God's design and it shows that God is primarily trying to mitigate its use by his people throughout the scriptures. 
Even this passage today levels the relationship between bondservant and master, calling them to work together as to Christ. And the second thing is this, that this type of slavery we're talking about here is not the same slavery as we had here in America in our history. This is not chattel slavery. Uh, it, this is likely was just as brutal and evil at times. Slavery in all forms is evil. But it also had other forms here in Ephesus, including indentured servants, servants themselves. So the re- for that reason, we use the term bondservant here instead of using the word slave to distinguish it. So what is Paul saying here? Paul is calling both the bondservant and the master to do their work and relate to each other in a way that is different than the world would at that time. He's giving a new structure that points to Jesus, and Paul calls the bondservant to work honestly for their masters as for Jesus. This is different than bondservants would normally do at that time. And it also says to do it with fear and trembling. And I know that that sounds demeaning at first, but it's actually a common phrase used at the time that means with respect. Paul forbids masters from both physical violence and even harsh words against their bondservants. Guys, this is, again, uh, highly countercultural at the time. And calls for the masters to work with the bondservants with a good will, it says, as to the Lord, it says. Again, we see the mitigation of slavery here. And this is, again, different than how masters and bondservants would act in that day. That's what Paul is calling us to do. And the same thing as to the Lord and not to man. Why? Because this brings glory to God's name and it points to Jesus. So as you go to school, as you study, as you um, go to work through the daily grind, as you, as you um, parent and manage your households, remember your work is just as important and just as good as the work of the minister at a church because we are all a holy priesthood. We all have the spirit within us. So kids, as you do your chores and your houses, I don't know if you guys have chores. We have some in our house. Uh, Guys, I want you to remember that imagine that when you're doing your chores, you're doing them for Jesus. He wants you to help your parents. He wants you to, to be responsible and he, wants to see, he likes to see you doing them with an honoring heart towards your parents. And church, as we, as we go out, uh, we have the chance every day as we work to do it differently as to God, pointing to Jesus as we do it and as we do it differently. Guys, in conclusion, uh, Jesus calls us to live differently in our relationships, and when we do, we point others to him. And these relationships, they change over time that we talked about today, but if we focus each day on honoring God today, wherever he has us, he will be glorified. These callings Paul describes here show God's goodness because God is not a God of chaos. He is not a God of domination. He is a God of structure and of balance and intention. And God calls us to live in this way by his design for our own thriving, and that's so that we can reflect something beautiful about him. And if you don't know this, God, if you feel this emptiness inside, this yearning to know a love that's going to truly fill, now's the time. I mean, close your eyes. Let him take your heart. You're not going to be able to do it alone. The Spirit is going to have to do it. I'm not, my words aren't going to do it. It's going to be the Holy Spirit calling your heart. If you feel that calling, close your eyes and let him take it. Turn to him and he will give you a true rest and a true purpose. He is our good father. Let us pray to him. Father, it is hard for us to understand why. And Lord, we groan inwardly in our struggles as we wait for you here, Lord, to put all things right in the end and make them new. And Lord, we submit to you, our God, our creator, and we come to you as our only hope and true joy.
Amen.